0: as we continue in our new series, Agape, the life and look of love in a broken world. And we concluded last week um, by my uh, leaving you hanging by saying there, there are four keys, at least. There are probably more than four, but we're going we're gonna to focus in on four, zoom in on four of them four biblical keys that help us to to hold out the the life and love of God in our broken world, our crooked and twisted and decaying culture, Uh, particularly as we consider the the community of our neighbors, our LGTBQ neighbors, and how we as God's people are to relate and love and understand. And the first key that we look at this morning is understanding God's heart. Living and loving in a broken world, what does the life and love look like? of the people of God in a broken world. And the first key is understanding God's heart. Would you say that with me? Can you say that behind masked uh, faces? Understanding God's heart. Look at this passage with me. Paul's letter to the Romans, beginning at verse 18 of chapter 1. But God shows His anger or some of your translations may say wrath, from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because He has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the the earth and sky Through everything God made, they can clearly see His invisible qualities, His external power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship Him as God or even give Him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshipping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshipped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them to whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result... They did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshipped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other and the men instead of having normal sexual relations with women burned with lust for each other men did shameful things with other men and as a result of this sin they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved since they thought it foolish to acknowledge god he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things That should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful, They invent new ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand. They break their promises. They are heartless and they have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die. Yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. How can I live and love in a crooked, twisted, decaying culture? As even Paul describes for us here in our passage, what does the life of love look like in our broken world? If if we are called by God to love our neighbors, to love our brothers and sisters, those within the Redeemed family of God, but also our brothers and sisters in the world in general, as we have recognized together, God considers them. How can I hold out the word of life rather than issuing an attitude of judgment? The first key that we're looking at, as I said, is understanding God's heart. The key of understanding God's heart in all of this, this matter that we're considering together. If you have ever watched the felling or the cutting down of an old large tree, as I have, you have perhaps also found it to be a fascinating process to watch as the arborists go about their work with ropes and climbing gear, and extension pruners and chainsaws. Sometimes, as I've watched, I've wondered with sadness why they were taking down what appeared to be, to my untrained eyes, such a magnificent structure of botany. This great ancient growth tree. To look at the tree you wouldn't have known there was anything much wrong with it. If you'd looked closely at the upper branches, you might have noticed a few signs of ill health. There was a certain amount of fungus growing around the base of the tree. But, so I thought, anyway, all trees have that, don't they? I soon learned otherwise as the great trunk of the tree was being cut up into sections to then be hauled away. The the outer two or three inches were solid, good, strong wood. But the rest of the trunk, at its core, was stained a dark, mottled pattern. These tree experts understood that the fungus at the base of the tree was killing off the root system and it had begun to spread up the trunk of the tree. And before long, it would infect the entire tree. In high winds, this made the tree dangerous. So, it had to come down. What looked... To me, what looked to the casual passerby as a majestic, solid, old-growth tree would have become a serious accident waiting to happen. Beloved, essentially that is what Paul is saying here in our passage today. That's what he's getting at. He's saying that the work of the Gospel... The unveiling of God's justice and salvation is urgently required because the tree is rotten to the core and might come crashing down at any minute. The tree in question, of course, is humankind as it has worked itself into rebellion against its Creator at every level. Paul gives us a very graphic description of what that looks like. Humankind was always designed to be central to God's plan to rule His creation. Always designed to be central to that. That's part of what it means to be made, in fact, in God's image. So when humans go wrong, the world as a whole is put out of joint. So Paul lays out this charge against humankind in general. Humankind is rotten at its heart. And the eventual crash to which this will lead is anticipated in the signs of brokenness, corruption, disintegration, and decay, which can be seen, so to speak, in the rotting of the roots themselves and spreading into the upper branches. Loved ones, human beings were made to know, worship, Love and serve Creator God. That always was and always will be the way to healthy, meaningful, and fruitful human living. Yeah? It demands, of course, a certain kind of humility of us. A willingness to let God be God. To celebrate and honor Him as such, and acknowledge His power in and over the world. Paul affirms here in our passage that human beings have not lost altogether this sense of God's person, His power and deity. God's image imprinted upon humankind has become disfigured, but it is still evident upon them. As we have noted last week and the week before, all humankind has been created in His image. And while that image has been disfigured, it is still evident. However, Paul declares that they have chosen to suppress this truth, instead of honoring God as His image bearers and giving Him thanks. This passage that we have opened before us describes the increase of decay that takes place in an individual and in a society and culture when the revelation of God is suppressed and renounced in this way. Paul gives us a graphic description of how the disease spreads. It occurs not as we might suppose with evil behavior. That comes later. But it occurs with distorted thinking. And A darkened heart. Look at verse 21 again with me, will you? For although they knew God, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship Him as God or even give Him thanks. And so they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. You see, it begins with the thinking being distorted. The minds and hearts being darkened. Ungodliness, as Paul uses it here, refers to what happens when humans fail to worship and honor and thank, live the life of thanksgiving before the living God, unrighteousness or injustice as it is used here in our passage, quickly follows in the broad sense of human life and culture and society getting out of joint. Becoming broken. Needing to be put to rights. Beloved, we live in such a society today. This is the culture. I don't know about you, Paul is speaking of his culture, of course, and he has in mind here Genesis. He's got Genesis in the back of his mind as he's writing this, and the people of God. But lay that aside, if we read this, in all honesty, this this sounds like our culture, doesn't it? We live in such a society today and the result is God's anger or as many translations of your Bible still have it, His wrath. Now, please hear and understand what I'm about to say. If I, whatever you're thinking about right now, your lunch or your next appointment or whatever it is, whatever's distracting you, if you'll just stop and please hear and understand what I'm about to say. This does not mean, when we talk about the anger, the wrath of God, this does not mean that God is malevolent, capricious, whimsically liable to lose His temper and lash out wildly. that is an absolute misunderstanding of god's wrath of his anger rather it is quite the reverse as you can go on to read in romans chapter 2 god is kind he's patient he's long suffering and forbearing. But he cares passionately about his world which he has created and his human creatures. And if there are types of thinking and activity which deface and dehumanize and damage and destroy the world and humankind which he has created, God will not Let them go on forever. Rape, murder, torture, economic oppression, the list goes on here in our passage. God hates all of these activities, He's angry about them all. Now, let's be quite clear. If he were not angry about these things, he would not be a good, kind, and loving God. Hello? He is not in the business of saying that the tree is perfectly all right when, in fact, it has a fatal disease. And nor is Paul. There are two mistakes. Two extremes we can make and take when we think about evil and brokenness in our world. Either we can imagine the world is completely wicked, and so there are no glimmers of goodness at all, and many do that, or we can think that evil isn't really as serious as all that. And our modern Western culture has tended to take the second line of thought. Despite generations of wickedness on an unparalleled scale, Paul takes us back to a more realistic assessment in our passage. The tree is indeed dangerously diseased, and needs radical treatment. Human life has been distorted and twisted away from the Creator's intention. There is no non-controversial way of getting at this whole matter. This whole subject even we're considering in this series. There's no non-controversial way to get at it. Throughout this passage, as I already alluded to a moment ago, you can hear echoes of Genesis. And Paul no doubt has that in the back of his mind. The book of Genesis. Paul has in his mind in particular Genesis 1-3. to He is tracing a way for us in which humankind have violated more than simply a law given at some point, in human history, but they have violated the very structure of God's created order. Paul assumes that there is such a structure, that is, that creation is not random, creation is not arbitrary, but there's a divine order and structure to it that God has given and created it with. We have a society and a culture, and dare I say a church, that that know little to nothing of the life they are being called to in the realm of Christ. It's an entirely new and foreign understanding to them I can no longer assume in my role as a pastor, shepherd, leader, preacher, and teacher of the gospel, I can no longer assume that everyone in the room knows who, for instance, David is in the Bible. I cannot assume that they know the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Many of us grew up in the church and in a day and generation where we there was a familiarity even in our culture of these stories, but that can no longer be assumed. There is such a biblical illiteracy that is so prevalent now in our culture, and dare I say again, in the church. Where we know little to nothing of the life that we are called to in the realm of Christ. The fullness of life. The fruitfulness of life. The abundance of life. That we are called to live and know in the realm of Christ. It's it's foreign to us. And the only thing, beloved, the only thing that will bring them to it is the evidence of a value that they esteem more than anything else in our culture and society. And it's not the value of truth. It's the value and virtue of love. The love with which we ourselves have been and are loved. We love because He first loved us. Yeah? That's what John tells us. He loved us first. He loved and loves us with a fervent and a furious and a wonderfully kind love that is intended to turn us from our sin. As Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 2. And where they see it being lived and incarnated as the world, as our culture, as society sees us living this love and incarnating this love. In other words, putting human flesh on it and demonstrating this love. That is what is going to get their attention. Not us waving our fingers in their face or beating them over the head with Bibles or shouting from a street corner that they need to turn or burn. Where they see the vitality and worth of this love, there comes a natural attractiveness To where they begin to wonder and they will inquire as to what is the truth then that produces that kind of authentic life and love. What is the truth? What is the basis, the philosophy, the system? What are you connected with anyway? What is this all about? Why do you live that way? Why do you have that kind of an attitude? Why do you have that kind of a disposition of love about you in this way? Anyway, there's something about you. There's a curiosity. And that something is not so much that they are persuaded about how pure and how holy you are, as how loving you are. And they can see something of the reality of this love within us to manifest. It is an illusion to suppose that we win the world by information. we win the world, beloved, by incarnation of the loving kindness and goodness of Jesus and the demonstration of the love that He showed and the way that He showed it. Your Bible knowledge as as. as good and as necessary and as as wonderful as that is as a follower of Jesus, and I'm not diminishing the value of that, but it's not your Bible knowledge that's going to have an impact. It's the demonstration of the love of Jesus in you. And the incarnation of that to the world the way Jesus Himself Incarnated, incarnated himself as we are even uh, reveling in in this Advent season as we move towards Christmas, because that isn't isn't that after all the message of Advent and Christmas? God's love. God becoming human. Taking on flesh, human flesh. Love becoming incarnated in our midst. And that incarnation makes room for whatever it is that we would share of the inspiration of the truth, of the Gospel, of the Word of God, and its revelation to the human heart. Beloved, what if... What if the church were full of people who were sincerely loving and kind and compassionate and safe, willing to walk alongside people who struggle? What if there were people in the church who kept confidences, who didn't slander, who didn't malign or gossip, but instead they took the time to be Jesus, to those who struggle with sin, to those who struggle with homosexuality. What if the church were what God intended it to be? In Romans 1 18 to 32, our passage, the opening two verses set the context for what becomes this progressive descent into the dregs of human failure. Look at it again with me. I trust you still have it open in front of you. This passage of Scripture goes on to note a series of things to us. And let me just summarize them. First, it says that God's anger is revealed in verse 18. This verse I know to some Christians in their approach to Scripture attitudinally Seems to justify the anger they feel with things that offend their moral tastes and values. God's mad, <laughs> so I have a right to be mad. After all, He lives in me. But the issue in this text is how do we think about and define the anger and the wrath of God? How do we think about and define that and understand it? Especially in the context of the good news, of the love of God, that has just been referenced two verses prior. Verses 16 and 17. And then in the subsequent chapters of Romans. The whole context that this passage is couched in is one of love. The love and the goodness and the kindness of God. So what do we have in juxtaposition here? The massive love of God that gave His Son on the cross because He so loved God the world, everyone, he gave Jesus, but boy, he's mad as hell and he's going to get anybody who doesn't buy into the program. We've got those two things in juxtaposition with each other in this passage. And that's the way you would often find this interpreted anyway by many in the church. Especially when you get into the list that follows, and particularly when you come to the part of the list that reads this way. Look at verses 24 again to 27 with me. Therefore, God abandoned them. He gave them up to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself who is worthy of eternal praise. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. And I've I've heard, and perhaps you have too, this text used as a platform For preachers to say, AIDS and VD are the judgment of God upon the homosexual community. There it is. It's right there in the text. And with that one pronouncement, the definition of God's wrath is defined in their minds. And sadly, in the minds of those that are struggling with these very things. And so we conclude that God's getting even with everybody. And we've been secretly wishing all along that He'd get even with them. Because I don't like it. Rather than coming to see that the wrath of God in this passage probably is more like what I was saying a few moments ago, as well as what we considered last week together, does God only view me as a son of His, strictly as a redeemed child of God through the blood of Christ? Or does He see every created being that He has made on the face of this planet having been the author of their life? Does He see them as His children as well? Not yet redeemed, but still His children in the sense that He is the author and the creator that has sired their lives into existence. And when those children of His, in their blindness and their ignorance and their rebellion of their sin, do the most self-destructive things, the self-denying things, not in the sense of depriving yourself, but hear this please, in the sense of denying the true self you were intended and made to be. So then for God, it becomes angering in the same sense that I, as a father, have been angered. And perhaps you, as fathers, have been angered in the same sense that I have been angered with my own dearest, precious children when any one of them do a stupid thing that could become ruinous, reducing and destructive where I would become furious. I I don't think if, if, if I become completely vulnerable before you here this morning, I don't think that any one of my four children would deny occasions where dad would thunder, what in the world are you doing? And I wasn't staging an act or being a drama king. I was furious. Why was I furious? I was furious because of something that was potentially destructive to them. That is to say, that while it may not have been the most tender way, it was a parental response of passion. How many know what I'm talking about? That was born out of a sense of impending ruin. A sense that if you don't stop doing that, you're going to destroy yourself. Sooner or later, this is going to ruin you. What are you doing? And this was not something done just because somebody spilled their milk at the dinner table. I'm not talking about that. They're, they're, that that's a whole other problem if, there's, if the Father's wrath is being spilt with the milk. I'm not talking about things like that, spilt milk or somebody you know put something on backwards when they got dressed in the morning or didn't button it correctly. I'm not talking about things like that. I'm, I'm, ta- I'm talking about those things that are ruinous to life, that are diminishing a- of, a, of a person, that are destructive. This has to do with things that when they are out there and and you see them acting like Absolute idiots are doing something that could be at the risk of their life. Their spiritual life or their physical life. Those, The gravity of those kind of things. That's when the thunder roars. Romans 1, verse 18. But God shows His anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress who hold down the truth. The truth of who they are in Christ. Who they are meant to be. What they were created to be. The truth of the life they are meant to know in the realm of Christ. When that is suppressed, when that is held down, when that is denied by their wickedness, And thereby preventing that truth from being known by them or anyone else. And the process of this whole passage as it unfolds brings us finally to more than their being given over by reason of their idolatry or by reason of the pursuit of those things that are not of God. Paul says that there is a renunciation of the truth. The truth is renounced. The truth that has been revealed in their conscience. So they are without excuse. Paul is saying we are all without excuse. Because even though we may not have ever had the Gospel explicitly laid out and explained to us, He's saying that God created you with a, a, a consciousness of the fact that, 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 that there's something more that there is to be about your life. There, there is something within the DNA that God created you with that, that somehow creates a, 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 a query in you that oh, what, is, what is my life all about? God put that there. How am I to live? How am I to know life to the fullest? How am I to live a life that is fruitful and meaningful and productive? How am God put that right within you, Paul says. Nobody is without excuse. We all have that right within our conscience. Because God put it there. The passage before us says God has revealed Himself to every human being. They don't have any excuse. But there comes a compilation of self-justifying philosophies and reasoning and rationalizing, buttressed by material you can pick up from other people who are making a case aided by those who are saying this could very likely be genetically based. Probably has to do with something that people ought to just allow you to be the person you were meant to be anyway. And as the arguments accumulate, there comes a deepening of the resistance and a deepening into the darkness. And the Scripture says, this is not just true of people who involve themselves in homosexual behavior. But as you go on down to the last four verses of this passage, and it speaks of those who gave themselves over to debased things, to do things that are unworthy, and the list of 21 things here, 21 things listed in this passage. The list, I'm afraid, includes at least one or two that would be true of each one of us in this room. Somewhere, somehow, I cannot stand before you today and say that I'm, oh, none of that applies to me. Look at it in verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a, a debased mind. Foolish thinking. To do what ought not to be done. They were, all, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Every kind of wickedness and sin and greed and hate and envy and murder and quarreling and deception and malicious behavior and gossip and backstabbers and haters of God and insolent and proud and boastful. Beloved, I don't know about you, but I, I'm nailed with a few of those things there. Hello? So we're not just talking about the, 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 our, our homosexual neighbors here. It speaks to all of us in the room. The most worrying thing and really alarming fact when I read this is that sometimes I see the person like those described in this passage when I look at myself in the mirror. There is a story that early in the last century, the Times in London once sent out an inquiry to famous authors asking the question, what's wrong with the world today? G.K. Chesterton responded simply, Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton that about sums it up doesn't it beloved the line between good and evil runs not between us and them the line between good and evil runs right down the middle of all of us hello And if we aren't clear on this point, Paul will remind us of it at the start of Romans chapter 2. You just read into Romans chapter 2 and that'll be made clear to you if it isn't already. How categorically, how frequently is God's heart on this subject in this passage misinterpreted and misunderstood because of a residual self-righteousness or anger in the hearts of the people who know the Lord. And so we point the finger at the world. Loud and proud. Because this is talking about them. And Paul is quick to say, no, it's talking about all of us. It is possible that you are here today with some active relationship to a homosexual environment. Or you, in fact, are fully participating in that life. And you wonder how God feels about you. I will tell you how God feels about you. How God feels about all of us as we wrestle with these things in this this list. He's furious. But, dear one, please understand it is not, it is not, it is not a fury that is born of anything else other than His loving passion that you would know the fullness of life that He really has for you and has intended for you as His beloved. It's a fury that when He sees you messing around in in the street, as it were, where it's dangerous and hazardous, And traffic is blowing by, and it's detrimental to your life. In fury, he grabs a hold of you or seeks to reach you and says, What are you doing? How many times over the years have I done that with my children? While standing on a street corner waiting for the traffic light to turn, and they attempt to just, just ignorantly and in it, they step out, What are you doing? you see it's a furious love like that with that if i can put that kind of a picture in your mind that's how we are to understand the anger of god his commitment to you and to your reconciliation and to your restoration That you would understand how very much He cares for you. And that the love which you have really sought, the love which you are really yearning for and hungry for, you are having such a tragic, pathetic, and ultimately self-destructive counterfeit presented to you. That you've bought into. That there is a reality of love that He has for you instead. That He intended for you. And those of us who know that love, those of us who know that love, we are called to so communicate and incarnate and demonstrate that love, recognizing that our mandate is not to be agents agents of anger or judgment, but agents to reveal the love that the anger of a heavenly Father's anguish and frustration and heartbreak with these self-destructive things being done by created children of His own order, that we would manifest that love to the world. Do you see the difference? People suppose God's laws are arbitrary, are random. They imagine that God, if such a being exists, they might add, has invented a set of rules to amuse himself, and that he then enjoys the thought of punishing people if they don't keep them. He he gets some tickled fancy out of that somehow. The, the ultimate in that league was the third Roman emperor, Caligula. Caligula used to have new laws written, and he'd have them written in small letters and pinned so high on the wall that nobody could read them. And then he'd punish people for breaking them. And many people imagine that's how God is. But to imagine that God and His laws are even remotely like that is itself part of the distorted thinking that Paul talks about here. The distorted thinking of which so much of the world has been guilty. So much of the world, so many of us have been guilty of. That is not God. That is not the nature of His fatherly anger. The decrees of God are not that kind of thing at all. They are built into the very fabric of creation itself. Evil behavior is inherently destructive. I I, I think we all know that Evil behavior has its own consequences. Its own wages, its own judgment, its own death. It points like a signpost towards death. How many know that? Creator God has made the world in such a way that kindness and gentleness and generosity and humility, love in all its many forms, is life-giving while evil in its many forms is deadly. There's a precious thing about God's love that is seen here in our text today. His broken heart that provides salvation to mankind. For the heart of Jesus, when the spear went into His side as the gospel record records blood and water came forth and by medical diagnosis that is the sign of a broken pericardium when water and blood come forth together the tissue around the heart has been broken literally the heart has been broken And the sacred heart of God flowed toward us with saving, redemptive love as his blood and water flowed forth. I am not ashamed of the gospel of such love. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And we participate in it, beloved. And we present it with joy and confidence as we live and love. God's broken heart is God's breaking heart that manifests in the loving fury and frustration that says, I will not tolerate that. I will give you over to what you give yourself to. As C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, put it, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. There does come a time when the Lord finally says, okay, okay, then have it your way. But I don't want that. I don't want that for you. And it infuriates me that you won't come my way because my way is so vastly superior to what you are carving out for yourself in your own imposed program of death and destructiveness. But if that's what you want, okay. This is what life looks like when God says, all right, do it your own way. And what happens then, as we see in our passage today, is that human thinking, human thinking, not just human behavior, but human thinking begins to deconstruct altogether. God gave them up, the text says. God abandoned them to do whatever their shameful hearts desired. God gave them up to an unfit mind corresponding to the fact that they did not see fit to hold on To the true knowledge of God. We still sometimes suppose that bad behavior comes from a victory of body over mind. But Paul knows better. Evil is what you get when the mind is twisted out of shape and the body goes along for the ride. In God's word, there is a beauty as to the way the Lord embraces the broken. Do you know that in Exodus 4, when the conversation took place between the Lord and Moses on the occasion that he was complaining about his stammering, stuttering lips? How many remember that story? You look at it in Exodus chapter 4. God's calling Moses, and Moses is kind of pushing back and making up excuses. And, 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 and Moses is saying, but God, I can't speak properly. I, I, I have stammering, stuttering lips. I'm not fit for the task that is before me. And they dialogue with each other, and God says, this is what you're supposed to be and do And and Moses continues to beg off and make excuses saying, well, I can't do that. Don't ask me to be what I am not. I am genetically a stutterer. How can I be a spokesperson when I'm a stutterer? And the Bible says that the Lord became angry. Notice this. He became angry with Moses. And here is what He said. Here's what God said to Moses. Don't you know that I made the blind and I made the deaf and that I can take care of you too, Mr. Stutterer? And God was not saying that He created people to be blind or deaf or stuttering. That's not what God was saying. God was stating that He accepts the fact that He is creator of all of us in whom all order of imperfection has taken place. Physiologically, mentally, emotionally, because of the fall of humankind. Or because of the things that are done by fallen people around us and to us. And God says, I'll accept the responsibility for that. But I'm accepting the responsibility not so that you can blame me, but so that you'll turn to Me because I've got the answer redemptively. I accept the charge for you, God says. In the book of Isaiah chapter 56, there is one of the most tender passages of Scripture. The Lord is looking toward the day that salvation will be fully provided. And He says this. He says, pointing to the time when the foreigner could not have a part in the temple of worship. And particularly, it mentions the eunuch, interestingly enough, which was a word used for the effeminate or the emasculated or someone who in another way had their sex altered and the impact of that upon their human sexuality. The term was the eunuch. Jesus also speaks of eunuchs. But Isaiah 56, the Lord is speaking of the fact that earlier in the law, it said the foreigner can't be part of the worship of the Most High God in the temple. The eunuch can have no part of it. And in Isaiah 56, the Lord says, the day is coming. I love this. The day is coming. When the foreigner will be welcomed in my midst. And the eunuch will come. And I will make him and her part of my family as well. For my house shall be a house of prayer for all peoples. Hallelujah. The glory of the goodness of God and his tenderness is what shows us the understanding of this key of God's heart. This first key to living and loving in a crooked and in a perverse and in a broken world, beloved. The key of understanding God's heart in all of this. So that when we hear terms like God's anger and God's wrath, We don't understand it in the misconstrued and misunderstood and misinterpreted way that it has been so twisted out of joint. And I'm talking about by the church. As goes the church, so goes the world. And we can't really point the finger at the world for looking at God that way because it began with us. That is not what God's anger, what God's wrath looks like. Rather, it is born out of a passionate, brokenhearted, furious love for all creation and for human creation.